Greetings to you from Restoration Church right there in Northwest D.C., and uh, I thank you for the ways in which you guys pray for us. We pray for you regularly, uh, often, and so Claire, it's good to see you, and Carrie, and Luke, and Matt, and Kat, and Katie, wherever you are. I saw you somewhere earlier. Uh, So there she is. So thank God for you. We prayed for years. Uh, I know I personally prayed for years for a church here because I just, we would have people come to us regularly on a Sunday and asking, you know, that we, I'd ask them where they're from and they say they were coming from North Bethesda or Rockville. And and I just thought that was a little bit of a a drive. And so um, we would pray that the Lord would raise up a church. I thought that we would be the ones to plant that church. And then James said, he's coming to Rockville. And I said, well, praise the Lord. And so I'm thankful for your witness. It is regular that uh, over the course of years that we have referred people to this church. And I look forward to the ways in which you will bear testimony to the greatness of the glory of Christ in this place. And your pastor, one of the things I love about godly men and godly pastors in particular is the care factor, right? I'm a baseball coach. Like, can you just care about the team? Even if you're terrible, care. You know, your pastor cares, he cares about you. He cares about Jesus. He cares about the advancement of his kingdom. He's constant. When he texts me, he's always like, hey, what I, because he cares. So you should know that, that your pastor cares for you. Okay, I'm going to try to care for you by diving into 1 Kings 17. Some of you are reading that going, what in the world is going on? Let me pray, and we're just going to jump in. Here we go. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are a God that is not silent, that you have spoken. May we submit to your word. Help us to see that you are king and we're not. Help us to see Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. So many of you know that well-known story of, uh, in the Bible, David and Goliath, right? Big giant guy, eight, nine feet tall, right? Big javelin and all this stuff. Tiny little David, there he is, going against each other. Had Vegas existed at the time, the odds of this fight would be a million and one, right? In favor of Goliath. But David did not trust in the odds. David trusted in the Lord his God that delivered him from bear and lion would would have him to defeat the giant Goliath. Goliath laughs at David, right, thinking nothing more of him than a stick from a dog. dog. But uh, David says to Goliath, I love this moment, he looks up at Goliath and says, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off uh, your head. And all this assembly will then know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And so, friends, that's a major theme we see. We know that David does defeat him, and what we find again in Scripture time and again is the battle is the Lord's, and he saves not with sword and with spear, not with the great might of the world. He saves so often in those humble ways. The God of the Bible is not insecure, friends. As opposed to what some of his followers may have led you to believe, he, is, he doesn't need intimidation or validation from anyone or anything in order to maintain his sovereign rule. He rules the universe not with show of force or fame. For the foolishness of God, right, is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men, as we learn in 1 Corinthians 1. And so he is glad to use the weak in order to shame the strong. And all the more he is glad to do that, especially when it seems as though his purposes are lost. 
seems like he's losing, as it were. He's glad to use it in that way. And so we see all of these things uh, this afternoon when we investigate the true story of how one king rules over all kings in the book of Kings. This morning we arrive at the ministry of one of the greatest prophets in all of the Bible, the ministry of Elijah, the Tishbite uh, in Gilead. He represents, Elijah represents, how weakness is the way of God. How in the most unexpected times, God uses the most unexpected people to accomplish His most expected promises. Three points. Here's the first. The obvious. The Lord is King. The Lord is king. I'm going to kind of hover above 1 Kings 17, this kind of first part, and we'll kind of uh, get a little bit closer into the passage. But sort of hovering about, just making some broad observations about this passage, Uh, uh, in particular the book of Kings 2, just in general, so you know, give you a little bit of context, the book of Kings is doing three things, right? And and I'll put them in P's for you. I'll make it easy for you. Power is trying to communicate power, namely that the Lord is king. He's the one that has all the power. Earthly kings don't have power, right? Uh, They have some power, but nothing in comparison to him. Kings is trying to communicate that God is the one that has the power. He's the king. Two, the book of Kings is trying to communicate promise, promise. Namely, it's trying to trace the promise that God made to to David that he would have a son in his line that would go on to rule Israel forever, a forever king. It's tracing. Kings is tracing that promise. If you've ever wondered, why do they keep bringing this guy? This so-and-so was king, and he was a bad king, and then this guy was a king, and he was a good king. It's tracing to see who is the true king that is the answer to the Davidic covenant promise. And then the third thing that Kings is doing is it's trying to uh, communicate the primacy of worship. Power, promise, primacy. God will not share his glory with another. And the book of Kings shows you that. It's showing you that. And so all the kings so far, up until this point in the book of Kings, have been tremendous disappointments. They've run after other gods. Even as good as King Asa is at this point in the book, and when he's a king of uh, Judah, he failed to take down the high places, demanding the reader to keep looking for the answer to that Davidic promise. But we look forward with confidence because as we read about all these kings, we are being told by the author, it is not they who are the real kings. God is king. He is the real king. Not only of Judah, not only of Israel, but of the whole world. And friends, that's going to become even more apparent in our story today. And I'm going to argue that this is the chief desire that the author would have us to conclude. He wants us to see that no matter who is in power, they are ultimately not in control. And we see this through the ministry of Elijah this morning or this afternoon. I'm going to do that a lot. Afternoon. All right, take for instance, just look at this passage and think about all the ways in which we are seeing that the Lord, in fact, is king and not the kings of the earth. So consider first that the Lord's man, Elijah, who we'll come back to in a moment, he goes to Ahab there in verse 1 and simply informs him that neither dew nor rain will come for years, and so it was. He just shows up and just tells this powerful king, drought's coming, and so it was. Just as the Lord did in creation, let there be, and so there was. And in the same way, he says to a man in control of Israel, let there be no rain or dew. And so there was, and there was absolutely nothing the king of Israel could do about it. It just was, because the Lord is king. Consider, secondly, how the Lord could direct not only Elijah to the brook of Cherith, but also that he could direct ravens to bring him bread and meat twice a day, right there in verse 6. The Lord is able to bring about 
ravens, birds to fly over things and drop down food from heaven. Look at verse 16. Consider thirdly how the Lord could keep the flour and oil coming for days, just as Jesus did when he kept feeding the four and the five thousand. Consider the fact that the Lord could bring about good and blessing in verse 8 outside the land of promise when he worked through this Gentile woman of Sidon. We'll come back to that later. But consider lastly the power of God that the Lord is king by the fact in verse 23 that the Lord rules over death. We see that in his raising uh, the woman's son from the dead as he would later raise his own son from the dead. The author wants us to see to contrast all of this with the power of Ahab and Jezebel's God of Baal. The author not so subtly asks through the pages of this story, where are you so powerful Baal? Where are you? Speak up. You got nothing. Can you stop the heavens? Can you provide food incessantly? Can you direct the peoples? Can you raise the dead? No, Baal. You can't, you can't even talk. And so while Baalism, friend, has taken over God's place at this point in the story, Baalism is not in control. They may have the throne of earthly power, but this false god does not have any heavenly power. And so while temples and images and worship may abound in Israel, this god of wood and stone has the power of a flea in comparison to the god who makes and sustains the world by the word of his power. The Lord, friends, is king. The Lord is king. Not Baal, not Ahab, not Israel herself, not anyone. This, friends, is the point that the author wants us to be compelled by today. The Lord is king. That is still true today. No matter who occupies the thrones of the earth, no one, no matter how much materialistic or militaristic power they have, no one rules from heaven. Only the Lord is king. All else you need to know is sinking sand. He alone has the power to judge. He has the power to supply, to defeat all other earthly powers, including, most importantly, sin and death. We see that prominently, friends, in this true story. I'm reminded of how back just just a couple months ago in November, the throngs waited, didn't they, with bated breath to see if their candidate would win and bring about their agenda. Maybe that was some of you. You went to the voting booths. And, of course, we, as we have heard prayed and said today in this, in this gathering, government is ordained by God. It is an institution established to promote justice for all. Scripture calls us, again, as you've heard today, for us to pray for our leaders, even submit to them insofar as they are submitting to that which is good, right, and true. But never, friends, never should we hope in governmental leaders for the same reasons that we see here. That no matter how much power they may have, they are all under the authority of God himself. Ahab was king of Israel. He brazenly builds a temple for a false god. You see that in chapter 16, verse 32. Without even blushing, he married a woman in Jezebel that worshipped a false god. You see that in verse 31 of chapter 16. Scripture agrees that he had so much power that he normalizes the worship of this false god. Ahab was powerful, very powerful. But he was limited in the scope of what he was able to do. Abel would soon die. Or Ahab would soon die. Matter of fact, I preached that just a few hours ago. He died, just so you know. He dies, just as God said that he would. His agenda of Baalism clearly doesn't last since nobody worships Baal anymore. In the end, Ahab's power was limited. 
It was tiny in comparison to God's rule. And friends, we see that play out, don't we, time and again in history. Had you been living in the 1960s, you would have thought Russia was so powerful that its rule could never be compromised. And yet in a generation, just a generation, they are a fractured nation with limited power. Had you been living in the time of Genghis Khan or Pol Pot or in Germany in the 1930s, you would have thought these regimes would never end. And yet they all did come to an end. Their power, their influence, while real, and it did have a real effect, it's little more than a notation in a history book now. And so it is, friends, with all of Earth's kings, including American kings. No matter the party or the office, in comparison to the annals of eternity, the rules of kings and queens, while important, they are limited in their abilities. No matter the size of their economy or their army, no matter how many followers they might have on social media, None of them can stop the rain. None of them can bring endless supplies of food. None of them can raise the dead. But the Lord can, because the Lord is king. All thrones, especially those that denounce his authority, are relegated to his purposes. I'm mindful of the 18th century atheist French philosopher. Many of you probably heard this story, Voltaire, that famously predicted that within 100 years of his death, there would not be a single Bible on earth except for those that were looked upon for historical purposes. And not only was Voltaire egregiously wrong, he was so wrong that within a few decades of his death, his own house wound up being used as a Bible distribution center. That's the humor of the Lord. True story. Jesus said, of course, in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And that's true of us today. We need to remember that. Elijah is going to have some trouble with this a little bit later. But for now, Elijah is an example in the vein of Moses, who stood before the great powers of the earth and spoke truth because they knew who was in charge. So I wonder this afternoon, do you? Do you know who is in charge? I pray we would. I pray we would not hope in the kings of the earth, but instead rest in the reality that the Lord is king. First Kings 17 shows us that. The whole book does. But secondly, we see, how is it the Lord goes about his rule? How is it the Lord then enforces his authority? Well, in the book of Kings, we see that the Lord rules by the word of the prophets. He rules by his word. The Lord rules by the word through the mouth of his prophets. The Lord is king, and he rules by his word. So from the beginning of this book, we've been reading about the different kings, from David to Solomon's meteoric rise to Rehoboam's fantastic fall to Jeroboam's rise and fall, to Abijah and Asa, to Nadab, to Basha and Zimri and Omri, and now Ahab. And all of them are making these boasts, some greater than others, and all of them we've seen have been forced to submit to the word of the prophets. From Ahijah to the nameless man of God to Jehu, now more prominently Elijah, the prophets declare God's will to the kings, and as the author says, everything happens according to the word of the Lord. Take a look at verse 1. When it says that now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my words. 
prophets were the prophet. So just like the other prophets, we know nothing about this guy, Elijah. And but we, the little we do know is important. He speaks the word of God, and it comes to pass. There will be neither dew nor rain except by my word. And his word does come to pass. Why? Because it's the Lord's word. Why? Because the Lord is king. And immediately, if you look there in verse 2, in the very next verse, we see the word of the Lord coming to Elijah and then moving him beyond the Jordan. The word is moving him. Then look at, slide down to verse 5. It says there, so Elijah does what? According to the word of the Lord. Look at verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, and he heads up to Sidon. Slide down to verse 16. The jar or jug of oil isn't spent according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Look at verse 24. After the resurrection of her son, the author tells us, the woman said, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth. You see, the author is just pushing this out loudly for us to hear. That the Lord is king and he rules by his word through the mouth of his prophets. He doesn't need kings. He doesn't need, or he can use actually the the mouths of simple people to shake the strong because he rules by his word. And to be sure, uh, Baal had his prophets, had his word, as it were. But I ask, where are the prophets of Baal today? The house of Omri, as we read there at the end of chapter 16, as carried along by his son Ahab, they did more evil than all before him. But I ask, where are the followers of Ahab today? The followers of King Omri, where are they? And yet the word of the Lord endures, doesn't it? Here we are, 2,000 years, well, more than 2,000 years later, continents across continents and oceans, reading the word, seeing the power of the word. It is the word of the Lord alone that can stop the rain, that can bring the bread, that can raise the dead, because it is by the word of the Lord that all things are made. It is by the word of the Lord that things are sustained and brought to life even. That's the other theme of this chapter. And you'll notice this, by the way, if you just closely pay attention in this chapter, you'll know that wherever the words of evil kings go, you'll notice death follows, as is exemplified by King Ahab being evil, and then death comes because of the drought. But notice, in the chapter, wherever the words of the prophets go, what happens? Life comes. Wherever the word of the Lord comes, life follows right behind it. Even in the judgment of Ahab that brings a famine, the word of the Lord puts Elijah in places, what? Where he can continue to have life. From the brook of Cherith there, right, to the jug of flour and jar of oil in Zarephath, to the life of the widow's son. God is screaming from the pages of these wicked kings, why would you follow kings that utter words of death when God, who is true and lasting king, offers you words that bring life? And so, friends, with the, what this teaches us is that as Christians, we are not allegiant to the word of God just because he tells us to, although that's true. We are allegiant to the word because we believe it brings us life, right? It brings us life. We understand that in the word of God is life and liberty. Jesus says as much in John 8, verses 31 to 32. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will, y'all say it, the truth will set you free. Exactly. 
It's what it does. We don't just follow it because God tells us to. If you're not a Christian, you should know that. We as Christians are not just following the Bible because it's the Bible. We're following it because we believe down deep. It's life. It's what frees us. Give you an example of this. Try and think about that last great meal that you ate. For us, that would be, you know, back, let's say, at Thanksgiving. That great feast. I want you to think about that great feast sitting in front of you. It was the cook's willingness to submit to the words of the recipe that led to the deliciousness of the meal. Right? Think about that. Sweet potatoes, warm bread, the honey-baked ham cooked for hours, Cranberry sauce, that perfectly cooked pumpkin pie or pecan pie, whatever. All of it is exquisite because the cook went to great detail to submit to the words of the recipe. Now imagine what that meal would have been like. You've eaten at some of these where they didn't do that. It ain't tasting good, right? It ain't no life given. <laughs> it's the opposite. All of it is exquisite because the cook went to great detail to submit to the words. Was it easy? Of course not. Would it have been easier just to go down to McDonald's and throw some food on there? Of course. But they did it they, so as to set your taste buds free from the slavery of dry and boring foods. Right? And so they gave that. They gave their hard work to submit to the framework of the recipe so that you could eat and be satisfied. Everybody submits to a word. Do you know that? Everybody submits to a word. But not every word frees you. And gives you life like God's word does. Like Christ does. His word is the perfect recipe to produce a life that is tasty and delectable. But like that meal, it requires patience, attention to detail, and a lot of help, right? We need a lot of help to help us understand it and come up under it. But if you give yourself to the word of Christ then the evidence is seen right there in the widow's son. What you have is life from the dead. That's what we get when we give ourselves to Jesus and his word. And we submit to it. I preached this morning about Ahab that was just unwilling to submit himself. He just wanted to do whatever the, well, he wanted to do whatever he wanted to do. It's those that humble themselves and come up under the authority of God as king and under his word that find life. And so if you reject the word of the Lord and choose to live with yourself as king, following your own words, following your own tribes and their words, then, friend, you'll go the way of Ahab and find yourself in famine. Our city is not better for having rejected the Bible's teaching on sexual immorality, on self-restraint, on repentance, on creation, or wisdom, the more, friends, we lean into the words of men, picking and choosing what words of God we want to follow, the more we will lead our churches, our children, our families, our communities into places of chaos. And that's exactly what's happening in Israel. That's exactly what's going on. The more they reject the word, the more they reject God as king, follow other gods, and reject his word, the more the community, the more the country gets into chaos the more insane society becomes. It's exactly what's happening in Kings. Meanwhile, the prophets continue to be the mouth of God on the earth, offering the way to life and peace with God and one another. And yet time and again, humanity keeps choosing man's words over God's words, and then they wonder why things are the way they are. Just read the book. You can see why. 
The reality is, friends, Jesus speaks a true and a better word. Right? He's the way, the truth, and the life. Trust, friends. Trust and treasure his words as your life. Trust him as king and then trust his words will lead you to the peaceful, life-giving places. And don't follow anybody else or any other word. He's the king of the kingdom. And he rules by his word. And this is why this gathering is so important, right? We listen to so many other words throughout the week. I love to think of church in a lot of ways, but one example I like to think of church as the way to kind of my, my car gets out of line and I get back in line on Sunday morning or Sunday afternoons. I get in line. I need that word again. I've been listening to all these other words. I'm out of line. I need to get back into Jesus as my king. His word's going to give me life. But you might be saying this afternoon, Nathan, it doesn't seem like he's king. It doesn't seem like life is bolstering all over the place. Third and final point. The Lord is king. He rules by his word. Thirdly, and he does his best work in the most unexpected times with the most unexpected people in the most unexpected ways. He does his best work in the most unexpected times with the most unexpected people in the most unexpected ways. All right, so I've been kind of hovering above the text. That's not normal for me. Matt will tell you that. Claire will tell you that. I'm normally like just handling the text, getting down in the nitty-gritty. So let's just dive a little bit deeper into the passage, all right? Take a look down there at chapter 16, verse 32. The end of that chapter. Looking back in chapter 16, verse 32, we see some things happening. When I first read this, I'm going, why in the world is this here? Why do we need to know this about Jericho and all this other stuff? Well, notice a few things happening. What the author is doing is he's trying to communicate some things so as to communicate some other things, which we'll see. Here we go. That was really profound, Nathan. Anyway, chapter 16, verse 32, we see the king of God's people, Israel, all right, Ahab, what has he done? He's constructed a temple for Baal in the land. He's constructed a temple in the land. We also see in that passage he married a Gentile woman named Jezebel who's a follower of Baal. And then look at verse 34. While there's been judgment, nevertheless, the city of Jericho has been rebuilt. Why in the world did you include that? Remember, when the, when the Israelites first come into the land, they, they move from the west into the east. They cross the Jordan River. What's the first place they take down? Jericho, right? Some of you all know. Walking around, the wall come tumbling down, come tumbling down. Right, those came down. But now we see, right, back up. Jericho's been built again. And we see God said, anybody that tries to rebuild this place, judgment coming. And it did. But we have, so far we have a temple to Baal has been rebuilt, or not been, not rebuilt, it's been built in the land. we got the king married to a Baalite woman, and we have Jericho rebuilt. What's going on? What the author's trying to communicate is, Everything as though it didn't happen. It's as though God did all that he did to bring the Israelites in, to defeat Jericho, to bring in true and lasting worship, to judge the Baalite worship that was in the land, and to establish a temple for him. And now, X amount of years have gone by, and what do we find? Everything's as though it didn't even happen. Tragic. That's what's trying to be communicated. God 
loaded truckload upon truckload of mercy and mercy and mercy and grace. Gave him his presence, gave him his law, right? I'm thinking even back in Kings, right? They build the temple and it's glorious, beautiful, right? The glory of God falls down and it's all done. It's all as though it didn't even happen. They're worshiping the same gods that the people in the land were before. Chapter 14, verse 24 of 1 Kings says that it's as though nothing even happened. Just listen to this account of false worship that's going around in the land at this point. 2 Kings 17, describing worship at this time, says, 2 Kings 17, 16 to 17, says, They abandoned all of the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves, and they made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings. And they used divinations and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord. This, friends, is the ministry that Elijah is showing up in the middle of. Worst environment imaginable. Every time, you, you ever see the movie Armageddon? Owen Wilson's character, they're describing what the meteor is going to be like when they land on it. And he tells them how awful it's going to be. He's like, is it the worst imo- environment imaginable? Yes. All right, worst environment imaginable. Right, that's what's going on in Israel. It's terrible. Worst environment imaginable. Had we, been, had we been following the Lord at this time, living in that time, we would have wondered where God was. While we are told to expect such things, we might say that these were unexpected times. In chapter 19, verse 18, which I preached this morning, it seems as though there are less than some 10,000 followers left worshiping the Lord. Less than 10,000. Millions of God's people that had millions of truckloads of God's grace and mercy, and there's only a handful of true worshipers left with the throngs following a dead God that calls them to kill their sons and daughters. That's what's happening. And who is the Lord working through at this point in Israel's history? Who's he working through? Who's his guy? Who's his people? Is it the halls of Congress? No. Is it in a presidential palace? No. Is it in the elites? No. Is it in the cultural movers and shakers? No. It's Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead. Who's that exactly? Right? I don't know. It's funny. You, you, go, you go read the commentaries. They're, they're, we're not even sure where Tishba is. and We don't even know who this guy is. Where did this guy come from? Exactly. The Lord can use anybody he wants. He doesn't need the powers of the world like the world does. Elijah is not the son of Ahab, a king. He has no ties, evidently, to David. He's not a priest in the line of Levi. No great wealth, it seems. We have no mention of family. He's just a man, just like me or you. Not exactly what we might expect during such a time of need, right? Had it been someone else writing the script here, we would have expected someone of greater prominence with a greater name and greater power. But no, friends, the Lord shows his might through the weak. He shows his strength in weakness. He uses unexpected people in unexpected times to bring about his greatest purposes. And not only that, he acts in unexpected ways. Did you notice where the Lord sent Elijah? The author says twice there in three verses so as to emphasize the point. Look at verse 3. Depart from here and turn where? Y'all say it. Eastward. And hide yourself at the brook of Jerusalem, which is, y'all say it, east of the Jordan. 
Same thing, verse 5, east of the Jordan. Now, why is that familiar? Why, why do we keep telling us the direction, east? Why does that matter? Well, remember, again, Israel came in from the west to the east. They came in outside the Jordan River, and they came west into the land. Where was it Adam and Eve were thrown out of? East of Eden. Here it is again. They're kicked out of the land. That's what's going to happen eventually. And where does God send Elijah? He sends him outside of the land. And again, why is this significant? Well, we'll remember again, because of all these biblical theological truths, right? Israel had come in, and we know later they're going to be sent east. Adam and Eve go in, they sin, they go east. The first thing they did, again, they come in, they go into the land. And now Elijah is being sent outside of the land. Again, just to reiterate the point, it's as though we are right back at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. Jericho is still there. The word of God is outside the land. The worship of Baal is inside the land waiting to be judged. And we ask the question at this point of the passage, why is the Lord doing this? Why does he seem to be constructing this narrative? Well, it appears as though he is wanting to rehearse for us the ministry of Moses. Now you say, what? Stay with me. Just as Moses went before Pharaoh and announced impending judgment, so has Elijah done the same before King Ahab. Second, as Moses and the Israelites were in the desert being miraculously fed by manna, so the Lord does the same for Elijah here in Cherith, miraculously feeding him food. Chapter 19 that I preached this morning, we will see the Lord visits Elijah. Actually, this was a couple chapters in chapter 19. The Lord visits Elijah where? On Mount Sinai. Same place he met Moses and spoke to him and met with him face to face on Mount Horeb. Both of them saw the glory of God from the cleft of the rock, Moses and Elijah. And so it is of no surprise that when we read in the New Testament on the Mount of Transfiguration, who's there? Moses and who? Elijah. Representing the law and the prophets. So what seems to be happening is the author wants us to see that as Moses ushered in this major epic in the story of Israel, so will Elijah do the same for Israel. As Moses came in the darkest days of Israel when they were enslaved to bring about the light of God's redemption and eventually bring them the, new, the old covenant, so does Elijah come in the darkest days of Israel. Only instead of bringing the light of God's redemption in the Old Covenant, Elijah is meant to be seen as a light of God's true and forever redemption in Christ. As Moses was the forerunner to the Old Covenant, Elijah will be the forerunner to the New Covenant. And some of you are going, how in the world are you getting that, Nathan? Well, fast forward to the end of the Old Testament. What do we read? Years after Elijah is dead, we're still looking for Elijah. Malachi chapter 4, verse 4. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And that, of course, Jesus, what does he do with that passage? You all know. Jesus understands that John the baptizer fulfills that answer. Elijah was John the Baptist. It was he that fulfilled the promise of Malachi when Jesus said that Elijah has come in John the Baptist. Therefore, rewinding the clock back here to 1 Kings 17, Elijah is turning the page of God's dealings with Israel. He had been working through Moses, who gave them the law, right? 
That then led to where the Lord would minister to Israel through the priests of the temple, which then led, as we've seen, to the kings, his dealings with the kings. But as the priests of old have failed, as the kings have now seen to be failed, the Lord now turns to the ministry of the prophets to bring about the word of God as a way to confront the false worshipers and to comfort the true followers. With a couple of quick exceptions, from here on out in the rest of the Old Testament, Hezekiah and Josiah, we we will see that from here on out, prophets will now be the major voice that God uses to prepare us for the son of David. The one that will be the answer to the Davidic promise. And to our great amazement, the true son of David will be a prophet, a priest, and a king. And he will rule in the fear of the Lord forever but I get ahead of myself. Back to Elijah. He is this unexpected figure, this unexpected place that's being used in these unexpected ways to prepare God's people for the new covenant. This is how the Lord works. He moves in unexpected ways in unexpected times, and he uses unexpected people. Elijah the Tishbite, not Elijah the king or the priest. But that's not all. Take a look at verse 8, chapter 17. After the brook at Cherith dries up The word of the Lord comes to Elijah, and as we've rehearsed, the word will send him to life. And where's that life? Back in the promised land? No. In Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon. Again, now we're talking about unexpected ways, right? You should be going, Sidon? Did I hear Sidon? Look at chapter 16, verse 31. The Lord sends Elijah, after the brook dries up, to Sidon. Not to the land. Back into the land. No, to Sidon. What's going on in Sidon? Well, we see from chapter 16, verse 31, Ahab marries Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. Of all the places the Lord sends Elijah, he sends him to the capital of Baal worship. This would be like saying to a missionary working in the Middle East, go to Mecca for a little retreat. It doesn't make any sense. What's the Lord doing? It's the home of Ahab's pagan wife. Talk about unexpected ways. Talk about unexpected places. And that's not all. Elijah meets a Gentile widowed woman with a child who is making her last meal before they die. And it is there that the Lord provides flour and oil without end for days. Again, just as Jesus kept grabbing fish and loaves of bread. The woman wakes up every day and just keeps finding food. And it is this same non-Jewish woman whose child dies, and Elijah prays and rescues him from the grave. It is the same woman that Jesus pulls out to use as an example. See, some of you might be going, Nathan, are you playing fast and loose with the text? Well, I don't think so, since Jesus is doing the same thing. Jesus is pulling out unexpected people in unexpected places to bring about his expected promises. Take a look. Luke chapter 4, verse 25 and 26. Jesus Christ himself uses this widowed woman as an example to talk about how God works. Unexpected people in unexpected ways. Jesus says there, but in truth, I tell you, this is, by the way, this is after he's rejected from Nazareth, his own hometown, okay? He's explaining that event. Why in the world would Jesus of all places be rejected in his own hometown? Jesus says, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them. In other words, God didn't send him to any Jewish widows. But Jesus says, but only to Zarephath and the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. 
So to sum up, Israel is absolutely in the moral, spiritual gutter. Only a handful of Israelites are left trusting the Lord at this time. A wicked pagan king is leading Israel into even more sin. Everything seems to be like it was all the way at the back of Deuteronomy. Judgment is fallen upon the land, and the God the Lord raises up to begin the new and final epic before the coming of the true and lasting son of David who would rule in the fear of the Lord forever. The guy that the Lord raised up is Elijah the Tishbite, an otherwise nobody whose ministry mirrors Moses's. And yet he is used to be a light to the Gentile people, as is evidenced by this Sidonian woman. Indeed, the Lord is king. He rules by his word in the most unexpected ways, in the most unexpected times, amongst the most unexpected people. And so, friends, it should not surprise us in the least that when Christ finally appears, he comes in the worst of times. 400 years of silence, that's when he shows up. More idolatry reigning in the land. Born of an otherwise unknown teenage girl named Mary from the know-nothing town of Nazareth. Unlike all the other prophets, priests, and kings, Jesus, we find, is faithful. He lived and ruled in the fear of the Lord. And because he did, he was able to defeat the enemy of our sin like David did before Goliath. Except he would do it in the most unexpected way. He would win by losing. He defeated all of our false worship. He defeated, Jesus did, all of the ways that we followed other gods. He's defeated all the ways that we've listened, other words that led us to death. And he did it just like Elijah did by going outside the city. He took on the judgmental famine on himself on the cross. And there, taking the sin upon his own back, Jesus assuages, satisfies all of our sin upon his own back for all the sin of those that repent and believe upon him. Jesus takes that on his own back. It, the text says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The judgment that Elijah prophesied, Jesus took on his own back, though he had done no wrong. Talk about unexpected ways and unexpected times and places. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, the blessing of David might come to the woman at Zarephath. So that the blessing might come to you and me. Gentiles, people outside the land. The second Elijah prepared the way for the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who has come to make all things new here in the land of the earth. And so the friends, the call this afternoon is to repent and to believe upon this king, Christ the Lord, to take up the Lord as king and specifically to know Christ as king and Lord, to believe that he has satisfied all of the judgments that's due to fall upon you. He does that on the cross. Believe that. Treasure that. Trust that. Treasure that. So that you and I might enjoy the life with him back in the land. In the new Jerusalem. Beloved, life is hard. I don't have to tell you that. Some of you have lost parents. Some of you have lost children. Miscarriages. Others of you don't know what tomorrow holds. Things seem to be getting more difficult for Christians. Ahab's regime seems to be pressing around us all. But Elijah has come. And so has his redemption. The redemption that he promised has come in Christ. On the worst of days, you need to know, Christ will come again. Right when we think all is lost. Right when we wonder, where is he? That's the time that we should look for him the most. 
as the light of a candle shines best in the darkest of rooms and as the warmth of the fire feels best on the coldest of days, the Lord does his best work of redemption in the darkest of days. He did it in Elijah. He did it in Christ. And he's doing it with us now. And so no matter what comes today or tomorrow, beloved, may we be found seeing and savoring Christ as Lord and King, trusting his word and knowing that he's working through small churches like New Covenant Baptist and Restoration Church that the world couldn't give a rip about. And he's advancing his kingdom right through there. Trust that. Believe that. Don't forget that. When you think nothing is happening, the most is probably happening. I love that line from Piper. You... God is doing 10,000 things. You might be aware of three of them. God is using his church, small and great. The word of the Lord is in the mouth of Christ. The word of the Lord is in his people as they declare his praise. Jesus is our great prophet, priest, and king. And so may we say with David in the face of Goliath, you come to me with sword and with spear, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. The battle is the Lord's. May we trust him that he is king and he is working out his will through the work of his word in unexpected ways. He did it in Elijah. He did it in Christ. And he's using us as the ministers of Christ till he comes home and he takes us home. And beloved, we'll be home soon enough. Keep going. Trust him as king. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, your king, you conquered from the cross. You conquered in the resurrection. You're ruling now. All authority is yours. Forgive us for the ways in which we have not trusted that. Teach us to trust you and to follow you. Teach us to be ruled by your word and look out for expected things in unexpected ways. We love you. We thank you that you first loved us. Amen.